0: Take your copy of the Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 37 as a reminder where we are in the book uh Sennacherib is in beginning his invasion of Judah he's come kind of uh to the edge of Jerusalem coming from the north he's sent the Rabshaka his cupbearer to meet uh with King Hezekiah really meets with Hezekiah's uh three fellows uh Eliakim Hilkiah and Shebna uh um oh, sorry Eliakim Shebna and Joab and uh, Uh, Those three listen to the Rabshakeh who proceeds to uh, kind of play fast and loose with the truth in order to try to scare everybody uh, into surrendering. And we're going to pick up at chapter 37, uh, right after kind of their response goes back to the king. Hear God's word. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priests covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned, found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush, he set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction." And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Reseph, the people of Eden who were in Telasser? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena? and the king of Eva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, And read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see... And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Then, then Isaiah the son of Amoz sent to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord. You have said, with my many chariots, I've gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tall cedars and its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, to its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago, I planned from days of old, what now I bring to pass that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency, complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. This shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. A zeal, sorry, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and uh, Sherazar, his sons, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Oh, there's a lot there. Let's pray. Father, you've spoken to us by the reading of your word. Now we ask that you would speak in its preaching. And give me clarity of speech. Give us all uh, faith from what we hear from your word, we pray for christ 's sake. Amen. I want to describe a person to you and see if uh, you know who i 'm talking about it 's that person that the moment that they hit adversity of any kind, kind of grit their teeth and just dig in, oh. right The tougher it gets, the tougher they get. The tougher it gets, the more painful it gets, the the more patient they get, the more enduring they get, the more resolute they get, the more unchanging and unyielding they get, the harder the times get, the more they turn into diamond. You recognize that person? I'm going to just go out on a limb and say, oh, probably most of us in here are not going, well, that describes me actually. (laughs) I suspect most of us are sitting here going, actually, I'm not sure who you're talking about. Is he talking about somebody in the church? I don't know him, right? Most of us are sitting there probably thinking like, realistically, when we're honest, the harder that things get, the less patient we are. I mean, if we're gonna be honest, most of us, the more difficult our circumstances are, the more we're like, okay, God, I prayed earlier, like this morning, how come you haven't answered yet? Like, I prayed twice this morning. How come you haven't answered yet? I prayed three times by lunch. How come you haven't answered yet? And we suddenly kind of put God in our daytimer and wonder when he's going to resolve our problems. Realistically, I think probably for many of us, it's uh, a very kind of defining aspect to our relationship with God is our impatience for his answer. Meaning, we kind of are, I think at this point in life and American culture and where we are, comfortable talking about problems and limitations and failings and hurts and heartaches. We're comfortable talking about, hey, uh, my body hurts or hey, my heart hurts or hey, my family hurts or, or hey, whatever hurts, and we, we kind of really want to just go immediately to the solution. I mean, none of us are that kind of novel reader, but we would be the kind of person that, that picks up the 1,000-page novel. We read the first 30 pages that introduce the problem and then skip to the last 30 where it's solved. It's why in this chapter, it's very fun. I mean, many of us, you, you probably at some point remember at least one piece of information from this chapter. You probably don't remember Hezekiah's prayer. You probably don't remember his kind of interaction with the king or his new servants that come to meet with him. Many of us, in fact, probably if if you have any kind of Old Testament knowledge, it's probably one verse, verse 36, which is weirdly the least important verse in the entire chapter. Oh yeah, by the way, Pre-incarnate Jesus goes out and strikes down 185,000 people in the camp of the Assyrians. The angel of the Lord kills the Assyrian army. That's That's the part that we remember. And it's intriguing how so much of kind of, really, that's how we process life. Our impatience is so dominant that we have this, hey, God, there's a problem. I want to kind of jump directly to the last chapter. Where's my solution? And in doing so, miss so much else of what God's at work in doing. This chapter, I I love it because basically the, the mightiest army on planet Earth is wiped out in a sentence. 185,000 people, I don't know if you realize that, that is a lot of people. Like, that's a whole lot of people. That's more than all of the Fort Mill township and surrounding areas doubled. That's huge. That would be one of the larger kind of you know, towns and cities in our region, in one night. And the intriguing thing is really how this is even told by Isaiah in verse 36. It's almost added like an add-on. Oh, yeah, by the way, <laughs> oh, yeah, I should probably mention this. God killed their entire army, so they all went home. It reminds me, really, of kind of the creation narrative, and I love how it's kind of, it's telling the story of creation, and you have that, my favorite little phrase, I talk about all the time, I love it, and the stars, like, the entirety of all of the stars that are made, the night sky, all of the kind of marvelous things that exist in the sky, he, oh, and the stars, just as, as an add-on of like, oh yeah, this thing happened too. Well, part of what's happening in verse, I mean, chapter 37 is, realistically, the solution to the problem is the add-on. Right? The resolution to the problem is the add-on. The important part of chapter 37 is what God does before that. The part that you and I want to skip. Right? Whenever we're hurting, whenever we're suffering, whenever we're in difficulty, we want to go directly from problem to healing solution and skip all of that territory in the middle, which interestingly is the exact problem focus of Isaiah 37. So what do we miss? If we read the first 50 pages of the book and the last 50 pages of the book and skip the middle 900, what do we miss? What's what's happening in this chapter? What is God doing? Well, there's a lot of things. And that's really what we're gonna kind of think about from the sermon today is just look at some of the things that God is using difficulty to accomplish. Now, this is not a comprehensive list of what God is doing with your difficulty, but it's some of the things that God is doing with your difficulty. Now, it starts in uh, chapter 37, verse 1. They've just received word from the rabshaker. We just had that sermon last week in 36. It's an awful and intimidating and terrifying presentation by uh, the cupbearer of the king of Assyria. He's not a nice man, uh, representing not a nice king, uh, behind or in front of not a nice army. They're famous for being absolutely wretched in how they treated uh, the victims and those that were conquered. It's a very scary thing. In verse 21, the king had told, uh, chapter thirty-six, twenty-one. the king had told his representatives to be quiet uh, when the rabshakeh spoke, and so uh, they hear his message, and then they come back and bring it to the king. Uh, but verse 22 uh, kind of lets us know the condition when they show up. Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah uh, show up to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, already filled with grief. Sorrow and sadness over the situation at hand, and in chapter 37, verse 1, we see something very shocking and very good take place. As soon as King Hezekiah hears the news, he hears the report from the king of Assyria, he himself tears his clothes and covers himself with sackcloth. And goes into the house of the Lord. Finally, finally the king is getting it. Rather than kind of preserving his own self-interest, right? He could have been like, hey guys, it's time to start packing up the gold. Give me a horse. I got to get out of Dodge. He, he could have done that, right? He could have been like, hey, it's time to go talk to Egypt, right? We have this alliance with Egypt. It's time to go renegotiate that. Where are their troops, For the first time, we see the king finally beginning to do what Jesus himself would praise. His first sermon, Jesus' first sermon, he acknowledges one of the key attributes of the kingdom of God in this place prior to the second coming would be that it's filled with people who mourn over the right things. The kingdom of God in this place prior to the second coming would be a kingdom that's filled with tears. It's filled with tears. It's one of the reasons why we hate the prosperity gospel. It's not a gospel, it's a lie, it's falsehood, it's from the pit of hell, it's deceiving, but at its core, it's a violation of what Jesus himself said his own kingdom looked like. People who who look around at the condition of the world, who, who look around at the prevalence of sin, who look around at their own condition and grieve. How did Jesus start, right? Beginning of his ministry. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Now I love what Hezekiah is doing here, is that he's actually showing proper grief. It's not uh, a temper tantrum, right? This is not the old Disney classic, Robin Hood, the, the old one, which is great, right? Where you have Prince John. Right? The sniveling kind of mew, and he's always sucking his thumb and whining. He's petulant like a child, and he's always just so upset about how bad everybody is to him. Right? He, he's self-centered. He's uh, tyrannical with his emotions. He's just a petulant child. That's not Hezekiah. Hezekiah is actually modeling the fruit of sanctification. Look, God is at work, and now proper grief shows up. Grief of heart that works out to grief of hands that then takes him into the very presence of God, mourning done right. Now, it's interesting. If the Shack had spoken and instantly God had zapped the 185,000 Assyrians, we would have missed already something that God had done, changing the heart of the king to look a little bit more like the heart of Jesus. That's wonderful. We want our kings to look like Jesus. We want ourselves to look like Jesus. Oh, wait, so you're telling me, you're telling me suffering is one of the things that God uses to make me look like Jesus? I don't like the sermon anymore. You can stop there. I'm ready to move on. All right, so mourning is where the king starts in verse one. This is a thing that God has produced. He's used suffering to produce Verses 2 through 7 is kind of a continuation of that, but not exactly identical. The king sends Eliakim, verse 2, Shebna, and all of the senior priests, all of them in the garb of grief, and sends them to Isaiah to hear from God. And you're like, oh, <sighs> When you've been reading, if, if you've been reading the kings of the history, the kings of Israel, the kings of the Jews, like, this is the point where are like, oh, you got it. Finally, this story is going to end well. Why? Because you have grief, proper grief, coupled with listening to God. Now, here they go to meet with Isaiah, and it's not just a social gathering, This isn't the kind of southern like, hey, can we grab lunch? Sure, why? No reason just to get together. That's not what's happening here, right? These men are all clothed in the garb of grief. They've got sackcloth upon them. They're reflecting their mourning in their very physical disposition. And what do they do? They go to Isaiah and verbalize their grief. Verse 3, this is what Hezekiah says. Today's a bad day. It's a terrible, no good, very awful, very bad day. It's so bad, he has this horrible illustration of, it's like the day where a, a mother goes to give birth, but she doesn't have the strength to do it, so she doesn't even try. We've just lost the will to live. It's such a awful day. Our grief is overwhelming. But again, it's not um, just petulant, self-centered kind of concern. Verse 4 Maybe God will listen. Maybe God will hear the, the words of the Rabshakra. Maybe God will listen, and Isaiah, what are you going to say we need to hear from God? In fact, actually, that's where they conclude. In verse four and a half, they ask Isaiah to pray on their behalf. They acknowledge they have no uh, deserved standing before God. This is intriguing, really, that the priests are involved in this. They know in some fashion the leadership of Israel has been part of the problem. They go to Isaiah, the prophet, uh, really the good guy in the story uh, as God's representative, and ask him to seek the Lord on their behalf. Again, as I said, this is the point usually in uh, the story of Israel's history where you know it's going to end well. They've gone to the Lord to ask, to ask that God would save them, to listen to his word, to do what he said. It's intriguing if you think about it. This is one of the elements, actually, that we, we miss when we skip to the, from the front of the book to the back of the book, when we kind of try to short circuit and, and get past the difficulty instead of actually paying attention to what God does with it, we miss this, that the Lord uses the suffering of his people to bring them back into the word, or to bring them not necessarily back into it sometimes, but to bring them with greater commitment, with greater obedience, with bigger ears, so to speak, ready to hear and ready to listen. So the people of God are eager to hear what God would say and eager to obey him. Now again, true kind of open confession, most of us don't like to sit in that moment of uncomfortability. Realistically, we've been taught, many of us, that the great kind of American system of ethics is that I will avoid pain at all costs. I will avoid physical pain at all costs. That's why my exercise looks the way it does or doesn't, right? I will avoid emotional pain at all costs, That's why my entertainments look the way that they do or don't. I will avoid relational pain and cause it. It's why so much of America is built around avoiding difficult things. And it's intriguing, friends. When we avoid difficult things, oftentimes we end up missing this lesson. That when we engage the difficult things, we end up kind of having to kind of realize At the end of the day, God's the only one who's speaking about these things correctly. And if I'm gonna find some sort of help or some sort of hope, I'm gonna have to go to his word. I'm gonna have to return to what the prophets have said to return to what the scriptures have said to hear what God will inform me about my body, my family, or my boss, or my relationships, or my sin, or whatever it is. Now, realistically, some of us don't like that benefit. God and his infinite kindness doesn't stop, actually, in this passage. Verse 5, the servants come to Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't even have to pray. He already has the word of the Lord. This is from a previous chapter and basically just reminds them what God has already said. Don't be afraid. The Lord's going to take care of you. Be at peace. Verse 8. Rabshaca leaves cuz the king of Assyria's kind of moved on they're still kind of uh, trying to secure the land they haven't finished it yet and uh, so he's kind of navigating other fights and Rabshaca returns to join in but uh, as this is kind of heard uh, they send more uh, another envoy more representatives to king Hezekiah to try to scare him This is a thing I think that sometimes we forget is that the Lord even uses our difficulty to show exactly who his enemies are. Right? To show exactly who the good guys and the bad guys are. I mean, Jesus would say this to show their fruit. Verse thirty six, or I mean chapter thirty six, the Rabshaka have been lying telling the truth partially, telling the truth in whole. He had been fast and loose with the truth to try to confuse everybody, and he had been using Hebrew right in front of the wall so that everybody inside would be able to hear him and be confused. He had been trying to persuade and to scare and to lead astray. Now, interestingly, the king has to send representatives again. Verse 10 This is what these are to say. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. That's an amazing statement if you actually consider what it is. The king of Assyria sent a messenger to the king of the Jews and said, by the way, your God is a liar. Wow. Wow. I mean, if, if we are really going to kind of put that in brass tacks, like, wow, you're content to call the Lord of heaven and earth a liar? Friends, that doesn't put you on the good guys list. Right? And it Mark, she is the enemies of God when you're comfortable saying, no, your God, the God of the Bible is the one who lies. He does not speak the truth. Don't let him lie to you. Look around, see how great we are. See how weak he is. It's intriguing that really verses 9 through 14, that's the enemies of God have the opportunity to show themselves. And this is a thing that polite southern culture does not like to talk about. Is that one of the purposes that God ordains difficulty for is to show that his enemies deserve to be his enemies. He deserves it. They deserve it. I mean, in fact, there's really some much more kind of high-end theological arguments than I have time to work through here, but uh, there's a great argument in church history to say that everyone who goes to hell is there because they want to be. No one goes to hell because they don't want to be. C.S. Lewis would make that argument differently and say that the fact that the Lord has given will to mankind necessitates a hell because there would be people that hate him so much they want to go somewhere else. No one goes to hell by accident. No one gets his wrath by accident. Romans 1 tells us that. And part of God's working inside creation is Part of his using difficulty is to showcase who his enemies are so that when he destroys them on the last day, it's easier for us to understand what he's doing. Uh, Some of you know I, I teach preaching occasionally up at RTS at the seminary. Uh, and I get to interact with students as they teach and one of the, or learn to preach. And one of the passages that I have them preach uh, as a, a first sermon, uh, one of the students will always have to preach Psalm 137. And uh, for those that you know your Psalms pretty well, you think, why would you pick that one? Psalm 137 is uh, actually not long after the book of Isaiah. Israel's been taken into Babylon and it's, you know, by the waters of Babylon we cried. Um, They mocked us. They mocked our God. How are we supposed to praise God? How are we supposed to do that? And it ends with this just shocking saying of, you know, blessed are those who take the babies of God's enemies and smash their heads open on the rocks. That's how it ends. That's the ending, the happy ending of it. And you're like, wow! And I love watching seminary students try to figure out how it doesn't say what it says. I'm like, no, that's exactly what it says, friend. And the reason why so many of us struggle with that ending is because we don't actually think evil exists. We think surely no one deserves that. Well, no, actually, that's part of what God is doing inside the created story, inside human history, inside our stories, is showcasing his enemies for what they are. They think he's a liar. They think he's, he's evil. They think he's not letting them have their fun. They think he's the bad guy. And friends, when judgment comes, it's because his enemies have earned it. Now, we, we pray for mercy for them. We pray that the Lord would make them our family members instead. But realistically, the people who tend to struggle with this the most are the people who've never been victimized themselves. The more of a victim you've been, the more likely you are to understand this. That the Lord indeed will judge his enemies. All right, very quickly, because there's miles to go before we sleep. We'll move uh, quickly through this. Verse 15 and 16. Thus far through uh, this entire interchange, King Hezekiah has, uh, I think, uh, kind of been praying but keeping his powder dry, as one of the commentaries put it. Basically, he's been hedging his bets. He's been asking that God would help, but at the same time, he's never really given up control. This is the point in Israel's history, really kind of the salvation of Hezekiah, verses 15 and 16, where Hezekiah comes to the Lord and basically says, Look, if you don't do this, we're toast. I can't solve this. I'm not big enough, great enough, strong enough, or mighty enough to do anything. Only you, God, are powerful enough. This is the point where his partial reliance becomes total reliance upon God. And again, what a lesson! Friends, some of you in the midst of your difficulty now, the trials and tribulations that the Lord has ordained for you to go through, the physical ailments, the emotional ailments, the spiritual ailments, the personal ailments, whatever they are, be reminded He uses those to teach you total reliance upon God. I mean, put differently, if a problem is small enough that I can solve it, I will almost never wait for God to fix it, right? If a problem's small enough that I can solve it, I'm gonna go ahead and solve it. I'm not gonna wait for God to fix it. And as a result, what am I doing? I'm constantly learning to trust myself and not learning to trust the Lord. Sometimes he gives us these difficulties that are too big, too great, too grand for us to bear. And sometimes we've maybe sat under pastors that have maybe not done their exegesis quite right and have said things like, well, the Lord will never give you more than you can handle. That's bad theology, right? The Lord will always give you more than you can handle, always, so that you lean on him because nothing is bigger than what he can handle. When you hit those moments where it is too big for you, that's what he's teaching you. to <laughs> so trust him and to rest in him. Verses 17 through 19. He teaches them that the Lord is the one who's in charge of defending his name. You don't have to. I mean, you're good and great and all. He'll take care of his own name. He's all right. He's got it. He's God. All of the other gods are, man, they're false gods, right? They've been made by men's hands. They're made of wood and stone. They are destroyed. They're false gods, but he is the living and true God, and he will defend himself You don't have to worry. He's got it under control. Even building to verse 20, that he'll save his people. So now, O Lord our God, save us from the hand of this foreign king that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the covenant-keeping Lord. Here, teaching his people That he's the one who will take care of them. He is the one who will protect them. He is the one who will provide for them. And then verses 21 through 32, you get to see really that he becomes the God who keeps his promises. Who answers prayer. And, And you need to understand this, people. Like, dearest friends, without difficulty, you will never understand that God keeps his promises. Difficulty is kind of really the forge where faith is created, that that God answers the promises that he has made, that he keeps them and does not forget them. Verses 21 through 32, 21 through 29 is offset as poetry in your English text to help you understand that it's switched out of prose. It's written beautifully uh, in an effort, kind of God rousing himself to say, I will defend them. right, it kind of gets louder the longer you read it. That's why I tried to read it that way when we did, but 28 and 29, what an amazing statement against his enemies, (laughs) right? I know you're sitting down, I know you're going out, you're coming in, and oh yeah, by the way, I know the secret evil harbored in your heart where you've raged against me, Rabshakeh, where you've spoken against me, king of Assyria, where you've uh, called me a liar and other things else. But 29, because you've raged against me, Because your hatred of me, even your laziness towards me, has come to me. I will. And he uses these kind of conquering illustrations. I'll put a hook in your nose like a cattle that's led around. I'll put a bridle in your mouth like a horse that's broken and led around. And I will lead you exactly where I want you to go, which is back home the way you came. And what happens 30 through the end of the chapter is exactly what happens. The Lord turns the king around. And they go the exact way that they came in and they left. Why do they do that? Well, verse 36 ends up being kind of the turning point, the one that we like to focus on, the one that we like to remember, that the angel of the Lord, who is both the Lord and not quite the Lord, second person of the Trinity, pre-incarnate Jesus, shows up and in one night goes through the camp of the Assyrians and strikes them dead. So that you wake up, you have the remaining soldiers wake up in what has to be one of the weirder moments in military history to wake up and have an entire army that's died for no apparent reason. Very strange, probably unbearably spooky. They get up and decide to go home. Fairly quickly, I would imagine. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say if you wake up and 185,000 of your soldiers died overnight from some mysterious you know, you know, enemy that's come and killed them all, you're not going to kind of leisurely stroll back home. Right? You're, going to, you're going to book it because you don't want whatever that is coming after you too. And the Lord provides. Now, why do we kind of talk about it from this perspective? Well, the reality of the matter is Uh, As we've, you know, kind of talked through this year and thought through as many of us, by God's mercy, have lives right now that are filled with joy and gladness. But for a reason that the Lord himself has ordained that I'm not fully entirely aware of yet, he has ordained for many of us this calendar year to walk, we might say, a season of distress. Right? For many of us, probably more tears cried this year than last year or the year before or the last three combined. And there's a temptation for us to want to be like, when is it all over? I'm done. I'm finished. I'm out. I'm ready for the difficulty to be over. Out. And perhaps this is a gentle kind of correction to our thinking, to understand that the Lord is so powerful and so good and so great That he uses even the worst of things to bring about the things that we need to be and the things that we need to have. I mean, I went through them fairly quickly, but just listen to those list of attributes that he's bringing about here in the King biblical mourning, seeking the Word of God. Having the enemies of God identify themselves as the enemies of God, a complete and total reliance upon uh, God himself, having the Lord uh, defend his own name, having the Lord defend his own people, uh, and even having the Lord showcase that he keeps his own promises. All of those things are the things that we all want to be or have. I mean, that's a description of the kind of Christianity that Christ is bringing about that we want. The kingdom of Christ And yet interestingly, probably for most of us, we are perhaps a little bit too impatient with the hurt and the heartache in the short term. Perhaps, maybe, our path going forward would one, to be repent, to repent and to trust and kind of recommit ourselves to the the wisdom of Christ Jesus that he does rule in his kingdom perfectly well. Well, But secondly, it's perhaps even to ask that the Lord would give us the eyes to appreciate the work that Christ is doing in our midst. Some of us are prone to discouragement because we haven't seen the 185,000 people killed yet. But in reality, we're also not paying attention to the mourning and the seeking the word and the reliance upon it and all of these other good things that God is doing. And so we grow discouraged because there's still 185,000 soldiers dead, not dead yet. But there's all of this other fruit that we're not paying attention to. May it be, perhaps, that you would endeavor to fix your eyes on the work of God, the Spirit of God in His church, the kingdom of Christ, and pay attention to not just waiting for the 185,000, but paying attention to the work that He's doing in the meantime until our suffering is taken from us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. Forgive us for our impatience. Give us the eyes of faith that we would see your good work in your church. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.